Hey everyone, welcome back to On The Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Listen, the market's crazy. We're taping this on Thursday the 25th. As we speak right now, the Dow's down about 400 points, so there's about 45 minutes or so left in the day. So for me, the top story is the market. But Danny's got some views on ETFs and what's going on with ARK, but I want to get into it right now. We've been talking about interest rates for quite some time, and I know it seems boring and makes your eyes glaze over. But as we sit here right now, U.S. 10-year rates are now north of 1.5%. And I got to be true to myself. I've said for a while, the line in the sand in terms of where the market's going to take it as a tailwind into a headwind is going to be 1.5% in the 10-year. And here we are. And I think the market's finally realizing that, hey, wait a second, maybe higher yields are not such a good thing. And oh, by the way, Maybe a falling dollar is not such a good thing. And oh, by the way, the foundation with so much of this market's been predicated and built on is zero interest rates and the MAGA complex that Dan Nathan talks about all the time, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon. Maybe they are subject to a bit of a tailspin. And if you lose those mega cap stocks, is the broader market going to follow? And what I found to be fascinating today Although the banks have participated on rallies and the banks have done well on sell-offs, today's a day where the banks are starting to give up as well. And I tell you, I think we can come back in a month, month and a half, two months and say that February 25th was a turning point for a number of different reasons. You have to watch bond yields, folks, because the bond market is getting away from our Federal Reserve. And they somehow think they can control the yield market or the bond market, and they somehow think they can control inflation. They have zero control. They control the front end of everything in terms of the yield curve. They control nothing else. And I think the market is finally catching wind. So, Danny, I know you have thoughts, but folks, 10-year yields are the key, and the market is finally starting to take its cue from that. You know, you're the one that always gets to quote the music. You're the one that always gets to quote the movies. Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. What's their, what's their most famous song, Guy? Uh, Stairway to Heaven, Danny. Mar- nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. <laughs> You know, when bonds are down and stocks are down, it's always that the broker is not answering the phone that day. I mean, there's, there's nowhere to go right now. So we're getting start to get tested here. And now we call what a bear market rally in the sense of these other meme stocks that are going on. This is not healthy for GameStop to be back up to 150 or 120, wherever it is right now. We're talking like six or seven billion dollars in increase in value in the last day and a half. That's there's not math you can show me that that could possibly work. Just think of it in in those terms, right? So this is not healthy. This is more wealth destruction, in my opinion. Now you got the FOMO going on again. The guys that bought it at four thirty eight, sold it for you, are buying back today at one fifty. Whoever's out there doing that, please don't do that. This is dangerous. And now there's a lot of undertones in the market right now. And I will say we had Yellen testify since we last spoke. We had Powell speaking this week. And listen, they can talk the uh, curve all the way they want, but it's not working right now, Dan. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, really, you know, we're talking about the stock market. We're talking about the bond market. I mean, you know, Guy's been kind of saying, and, and Danny, you've been echoing the fact that, you know, when we get the, the yields up here. I mean, investors are going to really start to think about equity valuations. And, and so that's really what's going on here. The S&P 500, though, because of some of the rotations that we've seen into banks because of that steepening yield curve, has really outperformed. It's down only about 2% from its all-time highs, while the NASDAQ is down about 6%. So that's really speaking 
speaking to some of the weakness guys mentioned in the uh, mega cap tech names. I'll just mention this, you know, we've been talking about Bitcoin a little bit on this pod. Don't think for a second that, you know, the 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 sentiment or the euphoric sentiment wrapped up in crypto and we're starting to hear all about these non-fungible tokens and all this sort of stuff going on. I mean, listen, Bitcoin is, you know, 49,000 as we talk. It made a high of 58,000 last weekend. I think you want to keep an eye on that. I think Danny's point about these meme stocks, not bullish, people. It is not bullish. And then obviously, Obviously, when you're looking at some of these names like Tesla down 8%, it was down 8% two days ago. This feels like it's a bit of an unravel here, despite a lot of good news. So, you know, to me, not a disaster by any means, but I think it's pretty interesting that we bookended year over year last year year this point this is the last time the 10-year u.s treasury yield was about one and a half percent here we are again equities are considerably higher but we know what happened to equities in that pandemic sell-off in the in the preceding month yeah and valuations almost by definition have to come down if we're entering the environment that i think we're entering and i was so hyped up at the beginning of the show that i forgot to mention that later on we're going to go off the tape with the great josh brown our cnbc pal who is brilliant by the way i think we're going to really enjoy speaking with him, and I'm sure he has some views on this as well. But what I will say is don't underestimate – and listen, I don't want to get into GameStop, the individual stock, or some of these other meme stocks that Dan talks about. But what I think it speaks to is the market functioning, the structure of the market, and things are just breaking down. And in my opinion, Danny Moses, a VIX at 21 when we walked in today, even with the trading up to 27, is still significantly too cheap. And what I think is happening – There's some funds out there, some hedge funds, big, small. I have no idea, and I don't have any knowledge per se, but I've been around long enough to see this could be an environment where one of these short gamma, short derivative book hedge funds start to blow up, and you wonder how it's going to manifest itself in the broader market. I think we're in the early innings of something. I've thought that a number of times, by the way, I've been wrong, but at a certain point, I'm going to prove it to be right, and I think we're on the precipice of that. Yeah, so this is really like you're swimming out in the ocean. It seems calm, but there's sharks lurking down there. And I don't think that uh, things have calmed down at all. I actually think it's going to get hairy here for a while. And now you're going to have new issues. And I feel bad for the administration are trying to figure out what happened with GameStop because the ETF market, and we can talk about this in a minute, has proved to be at various times very inefficient and very hard to predict, especially the levered ETF market. And we can talk and dig deeper into that in a minute. But this is uh, this does not feel healthy right now. Yeah, uh, you, you said new issues, and, and we're talking about new issues on two fronts here, right? We have traditional IPOs. We know that Coinbase just filed its S1 to, to for a direct listing to go public at a ridiculous valuation, $100 billion, $100 billion. That's up like literally 100%, I think, year over year or something like that. And then we have all these SPACs that we've been talking about looking around, and they're tripping over each other and really dragging up valuations of companies, uh, many of which probably don't deserve to be public in this environment. And then I'm looking at my board right now and I see DoorDash. I see Airbnb down 10%, DoorDash down 6%, Bumble, which just went public, down 8.5%. We're going to see very clearly after a one-way streak over the last nine to 10 months, just how diamond handsy these people are when it comes to some of these stocks. Guy, you have no idea what I'm talking about. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Diamond hands. hands. No, I don't have any. It's it's the dumbest, you know, but again, I'm 57 years old. So diamond hands, I mean, I think of the great James Bond movie, but the diamond hands things escape me. What I will say though, and I think Danny Moses will agree, volatility events don't correct themselves overnight. It typically takes 
a couple weeks, if not longer, to flush out of the system. And I do believe we're on the precipice of something like that. And why do I say it? Well, interest rates going higher is one of those things. You know, Dan Nathan correctly has said, listen, we're still in a very low interest rate environment, even with one and a half percent in a 10 year. And he's right. My problem is the speed with which we've gotten here. I mean, this was a 53 basis point item in August, now north of one and a half percent as we speak today. And by the way, couple closes above 1.5%, and I think the move to 2% is going to be even faster than this recent move. And that's going to prove to be very deleterious, not only to the equity markets, but to a lot of these short derivative books. And we can get into that, but that's sort of from my perch, that's what I'm looking at. So the last time that the equity market really saw major palpitations to the downside because of rising interest rates was the Q4 of 2018. And the uh, you know Fed Chair Powell at the time was trying to raise interest rates and they were doing it, what, a quarter basis point, like every other meeting or something like that. And we got up to maybe like 3% in the 10-year US Treasury. And then it was November and literally the S&P 500 dropped 20% in a straight line and they had to do an about face. They got really dovish. So I guess the question, and Danny just mentioned this, Jerome Powell was talking this week. He was really dovish, right? So if he's jawboning and and it's dovish and the market still doesn't care, what are they going to do here? Because Fed funds is still basically at zero and the 10-year U.S. Treasury is at that massive technical resistance, the 2012 low, the 16 low, those were thought to be generational lows. So to me, I think maybe you get a little room uh, you know, between 150 and two or something like that. I just don't see them going much higher than there. You got to watch credit spreads here. That's, you know, kind of the next thing to go would, would be would start to move and it'll move automatically with rates moving higher, but that that could definitely cause a stir. And, and I think when I saw the other morning or in the post-market last night after GameStop was up 100% that it was up again, my thought wasn't, oh, things are back to normal. Things are going to be fine. My thought was things are about to get bad again. I know that's counterintuitive, but that's the last thing you want to see is, abnormal trading activity in, in these names. And that means they're nothing, when they stop trading on fundamentals, you know, I think a lot of investors, both institutional and retail, took a deep breath over the last week and said, okay, we got through this, you know, things seem like they're stabilizing a little bit. No no more of this clearing issues at DTCC with these brokers. They're not going to prevent us from trade. And here we go again, this high volatility, this market is not set up the right way. And I'll go back to the ETF thing now. These ETFs, you know, some of them, and I'm not, you know, I'm not picking on ARC per se, but when you have inflows of $20 billion into an ETF complex in a period of a couple weeks, and you have to put that money somewhere, one, it's great if you own those stocks and you can you can see where those stocks are going to go. That's not a healthy thing because now they're exposed. And now, you know, take the good with the bad here. If that reverses itself, it's way worse. And I have one more thing to say about that. ARK is now finding itself the owner of 20 to 30% of some of these small cap companies. If I'm the CEO of these companies, I'm thinking to myself, how did I let this happen? What indice did they put me in? How do I get them out of here? Because all of a sudden, I'm going to have to answer to my own shareholders when my stock's up 60% and then down 70% where there's nothing going on in my company except us executing. And that just adds another level of noise and volatility into the marketplace that needs to be looked at. There is so much money pouring into ARC right now, or has been until today and in the last couple of days, that they're now forced to change their dynamic of some of their funds. Now, the ARKK, KQ, KT, they're going to run out of the alphabet soon. They're buying Google and they're buying Bristol Myers and they're buying things that they have to now because they can't even buy some of the stocks that they had set that fund up for. That is a structural problem here in the market. And I'll t- one last thing, sorry to go off on this, but these levered fixed income ETFs that are out there. Listen, I'm all about product product ingenuity. I'm all about products, but I'm telling you, we've seen these iterations in the last, during the bond sell-off and the 
taper tantrum. We basically had, there was a period of time, I think, where the government asked BlackRock to look at certain ETFs and the government was looking at certain levered ETFs. They had an open comment period. Things kind of calmed down and it went away. Rest assured, this is going to come back now. Look at some of these. Look at TBT, which is up big because it's short bonds. Look at TMF. It's getting destroyed. Look at TMV, TTT, UBT, BST. These are all levered fixed income ETF, bullish or bearish. And I just don't think that's healthy. A lot of those trade on derivatives. And so to your point, what you open with, Guy, what's going on out there? Are there other unwinds that could be occurring? It's not just in your normal portfolio management business. It's the underlying belly of this. And so- No, it's a great point. And I think you know one of the things that I've talked about for years is this advent of passive investing. Passive investing. And what does that mean? It means exactly what it sounds like. Money's just flowing into the market regardless. And I think in a lot of ways, and again, I know I'm a Fed hater and you know, okay, boomer and get off my lawn shit. But I will say that I think the rise of passive investing is right at the footsteps of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, because the news doesn't matter anymore, right? Market goes up, Fed's a backstop. We're just going to pour money into the market. But I will tell you, Danny Moses and Dan Nathan, when passive investing becomes active, it ain't going to be active on the way up. And watch out if the passive dollars start to become active. And I think that's some of the things you're talking about, and to, to a certain extent, you know, ARC is going to become a victim of their own success. You get to a certain level, you get to a certain size, and you become bigger than some of the underlying stocks, which is a podcast for another time, but we're going to have that conversation. Hey, I just want to comment, Guy, before Dan goes on one other thing, which is just so we can clarify here, and I know what you meant. So the passive ETFs versus active ETFs versus passive money going into active money, those are all different things. ARC is an actively managed ETF that charges like 75 basis points, I think, is the expense ratio. So you have this advent of active ETFs. So what happened was years ago, there was something called 12B1 fees. And I don't want to bore everybody with it, but it was basically your retail broker would get paid on a golf outing by a mutual fund to sell his product to your investors. And the, the fund would go into the broker dealer and the broker dealer would then split some of that commission with the broker itself. So it was kind of set up and what it was supposed to be 12B1 was marketing dollars that would be raised and it was sold as, oh, this mutual fund's going to grow. And if you're part of the mutual fund, you should want to pay into it because we're just going to grow the assets and grow the assets. That's positive for everyone. When the government and people shut that down over the last several years, the migration of the retail broker and how they made money moved them into managed accounts. And when you moved into managed accounts, you went to ETFs. So it all kind of flowed together. The reason ETFs came on is because we went away from the individual stock picking years ago and charging $50 per trade. We went to the mutual funds, but if brokers can't get paid on that, they got to figure something else out. Then they went to these managed accounts with these ETFs. Oh, I want some home builder exposure. Great. 5% of money in the XHB. I want some financial exposure. Oh, good. 5% in the XLF. They're just easy to do. So it hasn't been, this has been going on a long time. It's been rooted, but I just wanted to explain people out there the behavioral finance aspect of why this has occurred. We're not getting rid of ETFs. Those are here to stay and some are fine. And the index passive ones are fine. You're expressing a you know, a theme or something. So I just wanted to hash that out. Dan, go ahead. Well, first things first, let's get Michael Lewis and Adam McKay on the phone here. I think we have a sequel to The Big Short. Danny Moses is hot right here and he's got some stuff to say. And, and I think it's pretty interesting. I, I, I love the conversation because, you know, there was lots of pictures of Kathy Wood all over the media all week. And, and you know, it was very interesting. I think she was on the halftime show 
last week with Scott Wapner late in the week and talking about the rise in interest rates and what it might be for a lot of high growth stocks, not really getting into the weeds about how her actively managed fund, which has a huge following right now. You know, it's interesting in a way when you think about it, you're talking about the mechanics of an ETF and maybe a lot of our listeners don't understand it. I don't understand them totally. But what I do understand is that she's picked a lot of meme stocks that are in there. And these are great companies and they're disruptive companies. The problem is, is that the valuations make no sense. And if you think about it, even just this week, you know, Square announced amazing earnings and, you know, the stock has sold off. I think it's down like a 10% in the last couple trading days. They also announced that they put a whole heck of a lot of Bitcoin on their balance sheet or they keep buying it. And so at some point, you know, the news is just too good to be true anymore and the valuations don't make sense. And I think the thing that a lot of investors are going to have to think about of some of these truly great companies that, that quote unquote, won the pandemic because of the way they were situated and the trends that they are positioned for were massively accelerated. Get ready in 2021 for deceleration and what that means to your models, and especially at a time where interest rates have gone higher, right? So, you know, to me, I just think that's something to keep a close eye on. I want to make one other point. I, you know, Guy likes to footnote things that go on in the markets and, and kind of put them on a calendar here so we can go look back and kind of get a gauge of sentiment and what something, you know, what was going on back then. The other night, I opened Twitter and I see Dave Portnoy, uh, Davey Day Trader from uh, what's the thing called Barstool Sports, on with Vlad, the co-founder, CEO of Robinhood. And the fact that Vlad's handlers, whether it be the VC investors, whether it be his board, whether it be his partners or whatever, let him go on and do that with Dave Portnoy. He got slayed and he got slayed by somebody who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about either. I literally got dumber listening to the two of them go back and forth and it made no sense to me and I just think that there's just so much crazy behavior going on right now and I'm going to go back to Bitcoin for one second here. You know why Bitcoin started selling off at the start of the week? Because Elon Musk said LOL, it's a little high. That's what he said. That started the sell. Things have gotten into crazy town here. And it's not particularly funny and I just want to mention a a couple things. In, In terms of yields, you know, Bond yields going higher has been a tailwind for the equity market for a while. I think we've hit that point where it turns from tailwind to headwind. I think the same thing with a falling dollar. And I think we're seeing, you know, I just believe we're seeing that in spades. And in terms of the the Vlad interview, that was more of a hostage video. And I think if you really watch his eyes closely, Danny Moses, he was doing Morse code to get me the hell out of here. But, you know, (laughs) I know this week is an interesting week and I'm with Dan Nathan in terms of this is when you put a little one of those sticky things on or post-it notes on. So what should we be looking for next week? Like as we go into tomorrow's Friday or today is Friday as we drop this pod, what should we be looking for next week, Danny? Well, I want to make one last comment. Where are the adults in the room of the the boards of all these companies? We've always joked about the board at Tesla, you know, the board at Robinhood. To your point, how are they letting them go out? You know, WeWorks, what happened? We could talk about that settlement on a whole nother show, what SoftBank just paid the founder to get out of the way. But next week, I think it's more of the same. You're going to have economic data that's going to look absolutely spectacular next week. I don't even know what's on the docket. There's many is coming out. There's a ton coming out here. But just think about it. It was a year ago the world shut down. And so that's a big issue. I think that's going to be the theme going forward. I think it's economic data and what it looks like. We're through the belly of the earnings season. I know there's still earnings on tap. I haven't looked at the calendar of what's coming. Maybe Dan has, has some big ones that are coming next week. But listen, it's it's uh, we got economic stimulus coming. Hopefully that thing gets done or you know whether it gets done or not, I don't know. So 
a lot of things going on next week for sure. Yeah, it really feels like, though, when that stimulus number comes out, it's going to be a sell the news. And I just the guy, maybe they, they, they label me as the perma bear on the fast money. Um, I'd like to be opportunistic about trying to pick out what might be the bear story. I'll just tell you this, as bad as things feel right now in the markets and the narrative around rising inflation and rising rates, the S&P 500 is still up 2% of the year. Okay, and it's only down about two and a half percent from its all time highs. So if you're worried a little bit that, you know, we could be into a tough slog for the next few months here, then it might make sense to kind of rethink about what's happened over the last year, because I don't think anybody thought markets would be where they were. This is even pre pandemic, right where they are right now. So at the end of the day, I think there's uh, some room and I think it makes sense if you think that we're going to have a global reflation trade because the, the vaccines are coming hot and heavy over the next few months and this country is going to reach herd immunity, well, then you'd much rather see equities get oversold at some point and set up for an explosive second half rally. Yeah. And I think to to that point, I think there's a scenario that's going to play out, again, my opinion, where the economy does improve, but that doesn't mean the stock market's going higher. As a matter of fact, I think an improving economy is actually going to be deleterious for the stock market. And that's counterintuitive, I know, for a lot of people. But wrap your head around it because the stock market's been forward-looking for a year, forward-looking to exactly where we are now. Now here we are. Rates are telling a story. I think the stock market's going to wake up and say, hey, so how do we get onto this cliff? And, and that's sort of the prism that I'm looking through, Danny. Goldilocks is certainly being chased right now. And uh, she's had a nice run here for a long time. And I want to say one last thing here. It's meaningful, not because I'm saying it, because I think it is meaningful. It's out there because... The Dodd-Frank and Volcker rules, which are, you know, paired back and some were way too strict, I would even say, even after the global financial crisis. But we do have a new administration. And just keep in mind that the reason we've had such an advent of a lot of these fixed income ETF products is because the banks and the brokers themselves turned just into traders of these securities, not holders and dealers, right? They became more just because they weren't allowed to hold them. I'd be very concerned right now if I'm a large bank, if I'm a CEO of one of these large broker dealers right now, I am checking what we call VAR, value at risk every day. How is it being measured? What's going on? The last thing you want right now, I think you guys both agree, is a major loss on one of these commodity desks, derivative desks, or one of these desks right now on Wall Street. That will not fare well to, to the public. And I hope it doesn't happen. But re- many times when you see these type of things, you hear about it you know, weeks and a month later. But, you know, the market's changed um, and the way that people handle the risk has changed. So I, I just wanted to add that comment. Well, I've enjoyed the passion of this conversation and buckle your seatbelts, folks, because when we come back, we're going to have the energetic, brilliant TRB, the reform broker, Josh Brown, joining us after this. Welcome back, folks. Now it's time to go off the tape with Josh Brown, TRB. Josh is the co-founder and CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management an investment advisory firm where he helps people invest for their future. Josh has written three books, actually read three books as well, and most recently released How I Invest My Money. Josh is a regular contributor to CNBC's Halftime Report and hosts a podcast called The Compound Show. Josh Brown, TRB, The Reform Broker. You know him from every possible media site in New York City, United States, you name it, he's there. But what's special about today, February 25th, Josh, it's your birthday. So welcome to On the Tape, and happy birthday, Josh Brown. This is all I wanted for my birthday. Oh, stop. The, the, the timing worked out really well. I swear to There's God. There's a great story, by the way, Josh. I will tell you, on my 
50th birthday, 5-0, which was 17 ago. years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you came to the set of Fast Money at the 5 o'clock show with a special gift from me. You brought That's me true. these, what are they called, Fly 7s or something? Is that right? Yeah, I bought you a really nice pair of Jays. And of I what? Think you, what was uh, that? Uh, <laughs> Air Jordans, sir. <laughs> And and I believe you gave them to the first person you saw sitting in no, Times that's, Square. No, that's so false. No, what I did is I brought them home. I was so excited. And one of my kids basically gavoned them from me. And I that's think right. he has them now at school. But that was that meant a lot to me because you went out of your way. You bought me sneakers. You came to the set of Fast Money. And you, and you brought me a gift, which I really found endearing. And you know I love you. One of the main reasons I love you, Josh Brown, is because of your intellect. You're brilliant. And I say that. In, in every conceivable way. I find you to be so fascinating in your ability to think on your feet, to write some amazing stuff. And I mentioned that because on your birthday, you wrote a really great blog post. Maybe you can speak to that. I appreciate it, Guy. Thank you so much. And I do remember that night bringing you a pair of kicks and well-deserved, my friend. Maybe it's corny or cliched. I get a little bit introspective around my birthday each year. And the older I get, I guess the more my birthday means to me at this, like, I feel like when you're a kid, birthdays are really big. And then you go through this period of time where it's like, all right, whatever, it's my birthday. But then you turn the corner and all of a sudden, wait a minute, these birthdays actually do matter to me again. So that's, that's where my head is at. So I typically drop a post that's a little bit introspective. And uh, this year, I'm just thinking about taking more time to appreciate what's going on. And the fact that despite everything going on in the world, like there's a lot of good stuff happening for me personally and just trying to be more aware of it in the moment, which I, I guess is also cliched, but that's how I'm feeling these days. Well, so Josh, you know, it's, I read the post this morning, great post um, and obviously happy birthday here. You know, um, there's a bit in there that I thought was really interesting. You said that your your partner, Michael Batnick, who I also know and love and shout is a Batnick. phenomenal, if, okay. shout out to Batnick, a great voice uh, on financial markets. But he said, to you the other day, we're on the ride of our lives here and I don't feel like you're enjoying it, you know? And yeah. so it's really interesting because there's been a lot of talk in the markets with a lot of new market entrants over the last year or so, right? And everything that's going on with this kind of Reddit retail Robinhood thing. And people think it's been just a lot of fun, right? Like trading is fun. Markets are fun. And I don't think that's what Michael was saying to you is more about the business that you built, right? And the, and the, and the ride that you're on. Why are you not enjoying it right now? Is it the markets? Is it building a business? Is it just the stress? of doing it all during a pandemic? Like what's going on here? Yeah, no, I think it's all of that. Look, Batnick's a really important person in the firm, but also in my life because, and Barry Ritholtz, our other partner would say this too. He's like the conscience. Barry calls him his Jiminy Cricket. Like he's the guy that just calls bullshit on all of us. And he's just like, wait a minute. You know how you need somebody like that? I don't know who that who that is for your, your pod, but I guarantee you between the, the three of you guys and Spencer, one of you is the one that's like, hey, what are we doing? So he plays that role for me professionally, but also in my personal life. And I'm sitting, I don't know if you could see this, but you can't see this, but I'm basically sitting by myself in this room five days a week. And I'm, you know me, I'm accustomed to being in the city. I'm accustomed to having 20, 30 people around me all the time, entourage, the whole thing, people stopping in the office, random show ups, whatever. Like that's how we keep it cooking. And then for the last year, it's been the opposite of that. And I'm in here basically giving meetings to the whole firm, doing client meetings, like just by myself, though, like everything's on Zoom. And it's it's been hard for me. It's not the kind of person that I am. So Batnick's like, dude, why are you so angry all the time? 
everything's going great. We're thriving. Our clients are happy. Our employees are happy. Everyone's making money. Like, what's wrong with you? If you can't have fun now, like, when can you? And that was an important conversation for me because there's nobody really in my life that will come right up in my face and say that shit. But so, you know, but you have to hear that. I got to ask you a question now that I'm looking at the Zoom and no one can see this. You have Biggie on behind you. Is that Stalin or Jesse Livermore? Who's next to him? No, it's Stalin. You, you nailed it. It is Stalin? Stalin? No. <laughs> who, who, who is that? Who is that? I can't, I can't see it. Who is that? <laughs> what is that back there? You nailed it, Stalin. Uh, that's uh, J. Pierpont Morgan. Oh, JP. So okay. for listen, just right. for the folks that are listening to this that don't see it, which is everybody, Josh Brown is sitting and he has two <laughs> pictures behind him. One is right. apparently somebody called Big E, which I'm not I mean, Elvin Hayes, is that That's Elvin right, Hayes? Big e. And the other cat is some some guy Jesse Livermore, who I guess all you bloggers out there know it's he's not a real Livermore. person, not a real person. It's JP I have Morgan. No idea. I, oh, got, I got Morgan, the Livermore book better. though, uh, oh, yeah. right there. I was so. gonna say it was so so Josh, you and I met uh, I think you were episode 14 on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best. I was soon after that. But then you and I met at a dinner he had on crypto. And we were just joking right before we got on air here that if we had just done nothing, disappeared and followed everything that happened at that meeting instead of throwing haymakers like I was from the tables in the back, we'd be much better off. So it's been it's great to see you at, at things like that. And my, my point is that I think like me and, and Guy and Dan, you expose yourself to as many different asset classes, as many different people as you can. You feed off people. And I know you guys are big on behavioral finance, which is what I talk about all the time. And I think that's the key to everything that you do. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that helped shape you? So, yeah, that dinner was crazy. And I wrote blog posts about, well, I write a blog post about everything. But I remember that summer of 17 when I had bought my first Bitcoin at like 3000 and I started attending all these events. And to Patrick's credit, he put together all the Wall Street guys like us with all these crypto people he had been meeting and some of these dinners and events, I thought I was on acid, like listening to <laughs> shit, but it was, it all, it all came true. Other than the fact that nobody uses Bitcoin for anything other than trading, everything else came true. Anyway, the behavioral aspect, I think from a wealth management perspective, right? Because we're not a hedge fund. We're not a prop shop. We're not a broker dealer. We're, we're wealth management. I think behavioral is like 90% of the game for us. So we're very much steeped in all of the academic literature, all of the big books, all of the conventions of behavioral finance. And one of the things that Barry Ritholtz, I think, was doing earlier than most was talking about this stuff publicly. He was writing blog posts at thestreet.com in like 2001, talking about behavioral stuff. This is way before Daniel Kahneman became part of pop culture. This is way like before Almost anyone I can think of, he was exploring the stuff and sharing that research. So we built the firm that way. Our job is to get our clients from A to Z and not have them veer off the road during a, a moment of greed or a moment of fear. And we're constantly trying to manage people's behavior and psychology and telling them that that's what we're doing. And it's played a huge role in the success of the firm. Uh, thank God, most of the things that we're saying we've been able to indoctrinate our clients in these concepts to the point where they even catch themselves and they say, they'll come with a question. They'll be like, I know this is a question I'm not supposed to even be thinking about, but so the clients get what we're doing and it's, it's helped them a great deal, especially in a market like last year where behavior dictated whether or not you made the cut as somebody that knows what they're doing 
or you completely failed. Like, I feel like last year was a really good test. And fortunately, we we passed it. Yeah, and I don't want to get into GameStop, the stock, because I don't think it's particularly interesting. What I do think is interesting is everything surrounding it and what's been going on. And I'm sure you field questions. You got to talk about it on television. It gets difficult because, quite frankly, I'm not certain there is a single answer. But you also have to talk to people about it. How do you find yourself explaining, in your view, what's going on? Not, not necessarily in GameStop, but this whole phenomenon on Reddit, Wall Street bets, beating the system, taking down the man, all that stuff. Well, a lot of it's not really new. Like to the four of us, we've seen versions of it. I think one of the best analogies to what's going on right now is not really the dot-com bubble. I think the better analogy is the poker boom. And I know you guys remember, I think his name is Daniel Moneymaker. What was that guy's name? Chris Moneymaker. Chris Moneymaker. Yeah. Moneymaker won at the end of 2002, and there was something about his name and just the zeitgeist of, and it coincided with the Fed having cut rates to zero and leaving them there for two years, which had never been done before, by the way, never happened. And all of a sudden we were in this situation where the dot-com burst was kind of in the rearview mirror. People had gotten over that, free money everywhere, and poker just took over the country, the world, by the way. But Americans were playing poker in massive numbers, like millions of people who had never played poker before were logging in online. And that was like the national pastime. And you saw it in casino traffic in addition to the online. And it just became this massive thing that took over the country. And nobody could have predicted it starting. And nobody could have predicted when it would end. And in the moment, it felt like it would never end. And this is just the new world now. Everyone thinks they're a Texas Hold'em stud poker player and then just gradually it just kind of went away and there was a stock world poker tournament wpte tour. world, world poker, world tour, poker whatever. tour yep yep that was that was like the tilray or the GameStop or whatever like everybody was involved in trading that and the casino stocks and then it just like melted away and it, it wasn't necessarily like somebody said all right the bubble burst now it just faded People just lost interest and they were on to the next thing, which turned out to be real estate. But that's what this moment feels like to me with the collectibles and trading things that they only heard about an hour before, like coins and tokens. There's free money. Everybody's stuck at home. And I, and I really believe it's more similar to the poker boom than anything else we've seen. And I do think a lot of elements of this will just fade away. And it's really hard for people to picture now when the enthusiasm goes that's when all the valuations shrink. It doesn't, there doesn't have to be an event. It's just people being less into it. If I can parse that apart for a second. So, and I played in the World Series of Poker, not because I qualified, but because I paid the entry fee and had yeah. a good time and made it to late day two. You I and think. like but, a lot of people. Right. No, exactly. But I, but I will say poker has only built over time. I think you're right. People were fascinated, but it's only grown. If you're in any type of gaming center now a casino they always have poker room so that has grown separately i think you're right on the behavioral finance aspect of it and actually we talked about this last week on the show i think there's people playing with two seven offsuit right now in the markets that don't truly understand that are hoping on the flop that they can you know get an, get a couple sevens and another two and get a full house here and they're not you know playing well so i think from the casino hold, hold, hold on one sec don't you feel though that there's an element of this that has nothing to do with interest rates it's more like I read somewhere that there are 100,000 people 
who have more than a million dollars in Bitcoin right now in their wallets or whatever, their accounts. There's more than 100,000 people. So now think about this, probably another 500,000 who have somewhere between $100,000 and a million in Bitcoin. So these are people who didn't earn that money. I get they earned it from an investment perspective, but they didn't trade their hours for it. They didn't make $15 an hour and save that money up for 30 years. It fell on their fucking heads. And don't we all act differently when we think we're playing with the house's money? So what I think is contributing to the behavior, in addition to all the other stuff I listed, isolation, being extremely online, having nothing to do, having stimmy checks, all that shit too. But people behave differently when they're playing with poker chips versus dollars that they've earned. We all understand that phenomenon. And so maybe it's just as simple as saying, would somebody buy an NBA JPEG or whatever the fuck it is? Would somebody buy that with money that it took them three years to save up for $8,000? No. But if $8,000 drops into their Coinbase account, it's just different money. It's mental accounting, but it's like different money, no? Yeah, well, we listen, we, we talked about gamification, right? We talk about people that have a Coinbase account, a DraftKings account, and a Robinhood account. And they're looking at all three the same, to your point. You win money on a bet, you take it, maybe you buy some Bitcoin. And by the way, the largest online poker site is still illegal, Bovada, I think, and they accept Bitcoin to enter. So to your point, perfect. Josh, it's like, perfect, right? Great. You know what? I made a little Bitcoin today. I'm going to go play poker now. Oh, guess what? Maybe I'll go buy some stocks and just mess around. And I'll take a game tonight. Right. right. They're viewing right. it as entertainment. And I know that's not how you run your business. And I think, but you're right. It, it is a phenomenon. It is definitely a phenomenon. It's going to hurt a lot of people. And that's what like, kind of what I'm most concerned about is it's going to turn people off and they're viewing it as entertainment. That's not what it is. And that's not how you guys operate. Why do people honestly believe that, ev- that all the players can win? Like, right. like just right. take one step back. What do we know about markets? Zero sum at the end of the day. The pie doesn't just endlessly grow. There's somebody losing every time you win. Why do you have the assumption that it's you that's going to keep winning? Are you fucking crazy? That's the mentality, though. When I talk to people, the mentality is that everyone can win. They think they're in this together when they're talking about diamond hands. They, they honestly think, like, if, if we all act together, we can all win. So no one's losing? So, Josh, as a wealth manager, obviously, these are not the sorts of themes that you want to focus on with your clients when they come to you about NFTs and tokens and and some of this other stuff that seems very speculative. But year over year, talk to us a little bit, because it was a year ago where the stock market topped out in 2020. It seemed like in January and February, we were making new highs every day. And then all of a sudden, we went down 35% in what felt like a straight line for about a month or so. And so here we are a year later, and you use the term stimmy. When I was on your podcast a couple of weeks ago on the compound, you laughed me off the podcast for using the term stimmy. I just want well, to be using very it clear. To your fa- I'm using it back okay. to your face. Now. I just want to be very clear about that. Okay. So here we are a year later, and there's five trillion in stimulus, and everything's gone pretty well, other than the 500,000 people who've died in this country and and the economic scars that we're going to have on our economy for years. What are some of the lessons I think that you've learned and that you've been able to impart on your clients who are taking a long-term view? Obviously, you know, there was a lot of volatility in almost every major risk asset. And then there's been a lot of interest in things that are really speculative right now. I have a different perspective than a lot of people in, in our industry, because most of our industry has been built to cater to people that are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I have that component of my clientele, of course, but
But then I also have an automated advisory service online called Liftoff. And we've got very young millionaires as wealth management clients too, because we're active on social. We have blogs, podcasts. We have a boom in YouTube channel. So we have 30-year-old millionaires who work at Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Snowflake, you name it. For them, this is not as great as it would appear on the surface. If you are 35 years old, you, for the next 30 years, are a forced saver and a forced investor. 401k, buy a home, etc. Like you have no choice but to be buying assets. Why would you be 35 years old and rooting for all-time highs in the stock market and all-time highs for bonds and all-time highs for housing? It's terrible. It's terrible for young people. Yes, they might have made twenty, thirty thousand dollars in a Robinhood account, but oh my God, they are forced buyers of investable assets, and every investable asset you can conceive of is at an all-time record, not only high price but high valuation. So I actually don't think this is great for the seventy-three million millennials who are forced savers and forced investors. They are buying overvalued assets from their parents. Thanks to the excessive amounts of stimulus and Federal Reserve buying power. Now, I understand that we have to do the stimulus. We have to have a Federal Reserve that's an activist in this moment. It's not a policy complaint. I'm just saying I don't think that this moment in time, even though it's fun to trade, is as great for people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s as it is for people who are at the the tail end of that investing period and are now into drawing down their their wealth and and distribution period. And for those people, they got very fortunate that what's going on this. So what we're trying to do as a firm is not take a side, the bull market's good or the bull market's bad. Depending on who you are and where you are in your life cycle, it's either good or bad. And our job is to help people at every step of that, both ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between. And it's a very different picture depending on where you are. So TRB, you write passionately about what you're talking about now. You speak passionately about it on television, on your podcasts, again, in, in all the different forums. Let me ask you a question. When did you start getting jazzed up about this? Was it you know, young person, middle school, high school, college? Like When did the market start becoming appealing to you? Because as I mentioned, I mean this sincerely, your brilliant mind, you could have done anything, you chose this. Why? So it's a really great question. I feel like this really chose me because I was kind of a screw up in high school and in college, and I didn't really have a career that I was interested in, and I didn't really know what to do with myself. But I grew up in a very specific time and place, Long Island in the mid-90s. Everyone that didn't know what they wanted to do just ended up becoming a stockbroker. It was like, you go get your Series 7 the older guys from your high school were all driving Porsches and shit. Like it was just like obvious. And in those days, there's no online brokerage. This is pre-internet or the early days of the internet. So there's millionaires all over the country. You're in the midst of a 16, 17 year bull market and everybody wanted in. You know, it did choose you in a lot of ways. I think it's fascinating. Yes, I fell into it and I just I discovered that I was really interested in stocks and I really I think had a talent for explaining markets and investing to people. And then gradually started to realize I didn't want to be a retail stockbroker. I realized I wanted to be an investment advisor. So during the financial crisis, I kind of had this existential moment where I was just like, this sucks. I'm not helping anybody. Like what I'm doing, trading stocks for people is not, 
like getting them to what their goals are. So I dropped my series seven, I got my series 65 and I got very serious about behavioral finance and thankfully reading Barry Ritholtz figured out, okay, this is the aspect of the industry that I want to be involved with. Not, not so much the trading and the commission side. I really want to help people build portfolios and succeed in life. And the rest is history. By the way, I'm glad you avoided Stratton Oakmont because there was probably people that was fell gone right already. into that. Was yeah, it, it was gone, gone by already. that time you came out already? Yeah, I worked for guys that worked at Stratton. Yeah. Like, like when I was when I was a freshman in college, I came home that summer, I guess I was 19, and I worked at Duke and Company. I wasn't licensed. I was like, um, we were cold calling, but they weren't allowed to call it that. They called it connecting. So I went to I went into the city. I was living on Long Island with my parents, but I went into the city and Duke and Company was on Third Avenue next to the lipstick building. Was at 53rd and 3rd? That's where Madoff was. Madoff was uh, the building next door or in, in the lipstick building. And we, uh, we basically would dial the phone. Somebody would pick up, say, we're Duke and Company in New York City, and we're bringing Snapple Ice Tea Public. Do you want to talk to a senior broker? Every single person that answered the phone said yes. Like, I swear to God. Like, you call because we had the ability to tell people we're doing the Boston Chicken IPO. We're doing Callaway Golf. We're doing Snapple. And people in America wanted in. So that was my first summer as like an unlicensed broker trainee or whatever. And I just loved it. So I, I got to ask you, and Danny, I know you got more. I mean, we could do this for hours, but how I think Boiler Room is one of the great movies of all time. I, I could watch Ben Affleck's scene on a loop. It's tremendous. Vin Diesel. How accurate do you think oh, that movie it. was? It was a documentary. I swear to God, it was. A, I never would give props to a movie like a Wall Street movie in this way. The guy that wrote it did the same job that I just described to you for a much worse firm, and all his friends were we're the same age. Like it was that era, and Belfort's already gone by this point, and Stratton's gone. But there were a hundred firms. It was like. What's that flower where you blow it and all the seeds scatter and then they become flowers somewhere else? Dandelion, like the Rolling Stones song. I know you're not familiar with that group. You're more a Beastie Boys guy, but we'll talk True. about that later as well. Continue, True. please. But so, no, it was a documentary because here's what ended up. So there's a guy at Shearson Lehman who wrote a book called Telephone Selling in the 90s. And his name was Marty Shafaroff. And he's still a wealth manager to this day. Famous, hyper successful. He figured out in the 80s at the 55 Water Street office of Lehman or the Madison uh, Avenue office, he's figured out if you call people and you're full of enthusiasm and you have a stock that you really believe is going to work, blue chip stock that that person has heard of, you can transfer your energy and excitement and enthusiasm about the stock over the phone and that person will literally give you a social security number to open an account on the spot and mail a check within five days. And that that is how Wall Street, modern Wall Street, had built itself from the 80s till, till about the year 2000. And that book was filled with telephone selling scripts, which stockbrokers then bastardized and turned to evil purposes at Stratton, for example, to sell penny stocks and garbage. But legitimate wealth managers to this day who manage billions of dollars built their careers doing that at Lehman. At Merrill, at Morgan, at Smith Barney, that was the way that you did it. So that was the tradition that we learned. And I think there's a lot of negatives to it. One of the positives, though, it makes you a very effective communicator with a, a client or a potential client 
because you really understand what they're looking to learn from the conversation and you cut right to the chase. When you're doing that over the phone, you have to be really, really succinct and really on point. And this is just the way Wall Street was for 20 years. Yeah. So I was in Stratton Oakmont's offices. One of my fraternity brothers was actually- Oh, you selling Coke? One of the (laughs) characters- I had no job. I was 91, I think, or 92. <laughs> that's great, man. Thanks. No, no, that, that's South Shore stuff. Come on. Um, so, so oh, I, yeah, uh, sure. I was in there. So, and you would know right away. Like, you see the guys in the slick suits. You know, you don't, but like, you morally, you're going to, you're going to check your conscience at the door to go work at that place. But you I don't know. So, at 21, at 20, at 20, 21, 22, which is the age most of these young men were, you don't know that because you see people making a ton of money. And they're wearing suits and you just can't imagine that they could be doing anything wrong because they're not letting you in on the scam. Let's bring that back. Let, let, me, let me bring that back full circle. So I knew people that worked there that didn't have a right to make a dollar. You knew people that worked there. That didn't True. Have a, my, my point is that when it's that easy to make money, just like GameStop, just like all the stuff going on, you know it's temporary. You know You're it's not right. going to last. And something else is going on here, whether it's the herd mentality, whatever it is, and it can't last. My problem wasn't with, I, I didn't watch anybody do anything illegal, but I sensed in the room, I'm like, this guy's, this is not what I, not what I want to do, first of all. Second of all, I could smell it. I could just smell it. It didn't feel right to me. My first job was, my dad's like, all right, you're home from college for the summer. What are you going to do? I'm going to smoke weed. What the fuck do you think I'm going to do? He's like, no, seriously, you, you can't just be here all summer and not have an internship or a job or whatever. But I wasn't very serious. So he's like, all right, I'll tell you what. I play golf with this guy. His son's making like $100,000 a month. <laughs> you could go work for him. I was like, wow, how'd you do that? He's like, I, I got connections at the club. So I go, work, I go meet this guy in, and I'm like, well, what were you doing before this? He's like, I was a bouncer. So because I'm an idiot, I didn't connect that. You're right. This guy should probably not be making as much money as he's making. My antenna were not up. I was just like, oh, well, you're wearing a nice suit. This must be... This must be good shit. And uh, he's probably when your antennas were dead because you were smoking too much weed. You didn't have uh, you didn't have your sense. Yeah. So no. But so that's look, look, when you're 19, 20, 21, you see this going on and everyone else. is. Oh, there's another aspect to this. Everyone else is doing it. I know guys that are like surgeons right now who when they were that age with me, they were cold calling at. I mean, there's a list of like 100 firms, but there was cold calling at Merrill Lynch, too. And that's an important element of this. Every firm, this is how they were developing their business. It's just that some firms were using it to pump up penny stocks and other firms were cold calling with CDs and mutual funds. But this was just what, in the 90s, this was the thing on Long Island. And uh, again, I, I went a long time regretting it, but I think I did learn a lot about what not to do as an investment professional from all of the stuff that I had witnessed and all the behavioral stuff, more importantly. So Josh, let's segue a little bit. At some point, and Guy and I have talked about this a bunch on the pod, and Danny's kind of busted our chops a little bit. Uh, you know, Guy has been on CNBC since it started 37 years ago. I've been doing it for 12 years. I think you're about the same amount of time here. Back in the day, you know, you'd look up on the screen at CNBC when you were on your trading floor at your firm or whatever, you'd look up and say, look at those chamoles up there. So how does it feel right now to be one of those chamoles 
is, did you ever see yourself speaking to a national audience about the stock market and, and what has it meant for you and your business? Obviously, you were writing and people were reading your blog before you were ever on TV. What is the, 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 and then obviously the social media aspects, what has it all meant for you and your business? It's been amazing. And CNBC is easily one of the best things that's ever happened to me professionally, personally, and to their credit, what they did in the early days, working me into the shows, like very slowly, they were reading what I was writing and they were saying, we're going to do a segment on this tomorrow and you would be perfect for the segment because of what you're saying. Cause I had a viewpoint and what they were trying to do is build segments with people that had different points of view. So they gave me that opportunity to speak to something that I actually knew what I was talking about. So I wasn't on there predicting oil prices. Like there are things that I was uniquely positioned to speak about because I was working in the industry and living the life of somebody who is involved with investments. And that is the stuff that I got a chance to do. And they always told me like from day one, be yourself. I had no media coaching, like, you know, like n never worked on my accent, never tried to play a character or tried to act like I did something that I didn't. They were always like, just be yourself. That's what the audience wants, the truth from someone that's working in the industry. And uh, to their credit, they like gave me that ability to do that and not pretend to be someone else. And uh, it really worked out well. And I love doing it. And it's a really big part of my career for sure. No, and I tell people all the time, Josh, and, and you know, listen, 37 years ago is a bit of a stretch, but 30 years ago when I started, you know, people ask me, what's the key to this if there is a key? And I tell people, it's just be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. And if you try to be something you're not or try to prove to people how smart you are, what I've learned is, first of all, I'm not that smart. And second of all, nobody gives a shit. They just want to learn something. They want to be entertained. And I think you intuitively understand that. But what I want to talk about quickly with your writing to the folks that don't understand, writing every day to the extent that you do is not easy at all. How do you wrap your head around that? Because you're a prolific writer and it requires not only idea generation, but the ability to sit there and do it. So I appreciate that. So one of the things about the firm is that we've got eight people writing almost daily, which is like insane, all kinds of blogging going on. And of course, compliant and reviewed and archived, but People are like, how do you guys like write that much? Where, how do you even? So the secret weapon is that we have 18 client facing advisors who are talking to the public all day and the, the public, the clients are asking the advisors questions that the advisors then come to the research side and say, what do I tell this client? Taxes, interest rates, gold, commodities, emerging markets small versus large, value versus growth, all day long, these questions are coming in and we're doing research to give people good answers for them. We're doing research to build the right portfolios that address people's real life concerns. That's where the ideas for the blog posts that we do come from. So we're definitely not sitting in a room spinning the wheel, all right, whose turn is it to write about the US dollar? Like that's not what's going on. What's going on is like, we're really trying to better understand the markets all the time and trying to update our own thinking and incorporate things that people are genuinely curious about. And it results in really great content. And to this day, I read everything that my people are, are writing and I learn from my coworkers. And I think like, if you're ever in a work situation where you feel like you're getting smarter because of the people you work with, that's like a, an ideal situation. And I've been in the opposite 
where I would look around and I would say, look at these idiots. How, why am I sitting here? You should never be the smartest person in any firm that you work in. That's never been a challenge for me, Josh, just so you know. Me either. So I want to go back to CNBC for a minute. Now, in all seriousness, CNBC called me up about a yet-to-be-named show called Subsequently Fast Money in late 2005. And I went in in early 2006. I used to go in almost on a weekly basis. And you know, my sort of like incredible moment was, holy shit, there's Maria Bartiromo sitting over there. Aaron was on another side of the desk. Tyler Matheson, Bill Griffith was there. I'm looking around. I'm seeing all these people. And, and it was for me... Having watched these these shows for years, it was it was pretty amazing. What was your sort of CNBC moment? Don't say when you met Guy Adami, because I know that's the obvi one, as you kids say. But what was it for you, TRB? My holy shit moment? Exactly. Your holy, your holy shit moment. I don't know. Shit. I wish I would have prepared. I don't know if I really I don't know if I really have one. I, I kind of uh I kind of first started doing Fast Money at Five with you. And I was like, there is Guy Adami. That's right, the guy now, that, that, now, now you're making fun of me, which is fine, but that's okay. Continue, that's the guy, please. That's the guy that called the crash of 29. <laughs> I was like in awe. I was like, that's the well, fucking right, guy. Now you're, you, Josh, you're using my material, but let me all just right. here. Let me let me let me. I don't have. Some a, I don't have. I well, don't have a whole. Well, shit no, but here, let me let me just tell you this. So the first day in 2009 that I did CNBC, it was like April 20th or something like that, and it was 2009. It was the 30 year anniversary. Does that sound right, guy? Or the 20, I, I don't know. It was some really big round number anniversary. I walk out. I do the show. I'm with Mary Duffy and uh, Mike Coe, and they're the entire group of like all these people that I've been watching on the you know for 15 years are all out there having a cocktail celebrating the 20th or 30 whatever the heck it was and it was really cool because these are all people that you've been looking at yeah. every single day listening to was there a, a moment like that when you finally like oh I, I feel like part of this family now you probably didn't know how long you were gonna last I probably thought I'd be like six weeks and I was at out. the fast money 10 10th anniversary party yeah. when was that yeah. that was four uh, years ago yeah yeah, we had so halftime halftime report turned ten, turns ten this year, but I don't feel like there's going to be an in person party this year. Yeah, and it's Why interesting. Not? You probably know this, but the the halftime report, which is the halftime report, it's not the fast money halftime report, which That's we right. can get into or not get into. But that was born from this from the Summer Olympics, and they wanted to keep fast money in sort of the in the limelight per se. So they put myself and Melissa Lee on for 15 minutes at noon and it went well. And from that, the halftime report was born. So in a lot of ways, TRB, once again, you can sort of thank me for your prowess on the television screen. I was an OG halftime report castmate. I lived in the house where they had cameras everywhere. I was on season <laughs> one. I think it was in Seattle. <laughs> guy, guy, I want to thank you for, you know, we always look for signs out there that things are near the end. So when we were shorting everything in 2005 and six, waiting for the world to end, when you guys started Fast Money, I'm like, thank God, that's a perfect name. We're going to blow to smithereens now. Everybody get in. Every Fast Money's going to be made. Who was in that cast? Was that you know, you uh, say that in jest, Danny, Je but let me Jeff tell you Mackey? something. The original crew. So remember, we did the show all through 2006 as a segment. It was an existing show called On the Money. And we were an eight-minute segment. The, the original cast was myself, Jeff Mackey, who you know extraordinarily well. And there are a lot of similarities between you and Jeff, by the way. Eric Bowling and a guy named Tim Strazzini. And Dylan Radigan was our host. And oh I will God. tell you, 
the world started unraveling just as we started doing the show. And there were nights where I was terrified to go on air because I didn't know what just happened and I had no idea what I was going to talk about. And that lasted for about, I'd say, easy nine months, if not longer. So Danny, you're spot on. But I got to tell you, what happened then sort of catapulted our show because the entire world started watching but CNBC. Dude, but hold on. You were so, – so the world was unraveling. I definitely think Dylan Radigan was unraveling. Shout out to Dylan. We know Jeff Mackey was unraveling. I feel like you were like the stalwart, like calm. You were still cracking jokes. People I was were losing trying. like billions of dollars. No, but I wasn't trying to be bad jokes. You know, I was trying. I was trying to. I was just trying to keep it together. For listen, everybody's got a role. Not that you're playing a role. You're being yourself. But you know, when you have a good cast, everybody has sort of a role to play. And Jeff Mackey yeah. was the brilliant sort of. You never knew what's going to come out of his mouth. Eric Bowling was the pretty boy. Strazini was a guy that intuitively knew derivatives and options. And I was a guy that tried to synthesize all the shit that was going on. Now Dylan was the wild card. And we'll have Dylan on one of these days. Let me ask Josh this question too. Josh, it's probably like a year to the date that I last saw you. You and I were on a special, a CNBC special at like seven o'clock with Brian Sullivan. The market had just cracked, right? And um, called the bottom. <laughs> no, but you know, it was really interesting because you know we and guy, you know this. I mean, like you have to be serious on those days. So we're talking back in the financial crisis. Nobody knew the financial crisis was going to turn into that. But the, this crisis, the pandemic, there was that health aspect where people literally feared for their lives and then yep. their financial lives. Tell me a little bit about that, Josh, your responsibility that you feel. Obviously, you have these serious conversations with your clients. There's no joking around with them, but there's an added responsibility when you go on TV and you have these conversations, especially when you don't know how things are going to go. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what separated this crisis from every other market crisis was that people, in addition to being worried about their money, were also like thought they were going to die, and with good reason. And that, I think... Part of that make, makes me feel that they were less worried about stock prices than they normally are. I mean, we had a 35, 33% drawdown in 16 days, which has never happened ever, even like ever in anyone's lifetime right now. And the recovery was just as quick, thank God, for most stocks. But in that moment, you're on television and people are like, they're worried about losing everything. And in some cases, people did their careers, et cetera. And you have to rise to the occasion. And I think we always do. And then people make fun of it. They're like, oh, you're doing another markets in turmoil. It's a buy signal. All right. I get the joke. There's some truth to that. But you have to come on. You can't be somebody that's like coming on the show every day, recommending stocks, and then they all blow up. And you're like, I'm busy. I can't be on the air. You can't do that shit. You have to come, come on and say, I still think you should be an investor for the long term. And this is the heuristic that I was using during that time. And it turned out to be very, very prescient. It's the only reason I'm bringing it up now. <laughs> but what I said to people, I said this to clients on the phone. I don't mean on just TV shit. The real thing, when you're talking to somebody who's down a million dollars, right? And they want to just pull the plug and sell everything. I said, the news is going to get worse. You're right. Because that's, they're like, why would we stay in the market? A million people could die. I said, the news is going to get worse but its ability to shock us is going to diminish. And I felt very comfortable saying that without having any playbook for investing through a pandemic, because I know that that was the case through every world war, through every bear market, through every wave of bank. 
The news gets worse, but the market stops reacting. And it's not because the market doesn't give a shit or whatever. It's because the market's made up of people and shock value only takes you so far. And people start thinking about the future and stop thinking about the present at a certain point. And that is exactly how this crisis played out, of course, with a lot of stimulus and a lot of help. Um, but that's people stopped being surprised by the numbers of deaths being reported. It's amazing that resilience, but that is the human spirit and that's the American spirit. So I felt comfortable giving people that answer and it turned out to be true. I don't think we peaked in terms of daily or weekly deaths until like two weeks ago, but the market has not been reacting to those numbers. So Josh, I know you don't know this, but Led Zeppelin's last studio album was called I In Through this. the Outdoor. No, you don't. Don't pretend. Fool in the Rain is on that album. Beastie. It's and, not and, a great album. And it's a fantastic album. And one of the best songs on that Synthesizers? album is- Synthesizers? Is, is, <laughs> you, you are I got real, your number, I mean, Pops. Now- one of the great songs on that album is All of My Love. And one of the lines is, one voice is clear above the din. And honestly, you are one of those voices that rises above the din. We want to be respectful of your time. So thanks for joining us, Josh. And I will tell you, there's certain people when they come on television, you turn the volume up for, you're one of those people. So on behalf of Dan and Danny, thanks for joining us on On The Tape. I, I think what you guys are doing is great. I'm listening to the podcast and uh, I love it. You guys have a really natural flow. You have great guests. Keep going and thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks, Josh. Josh. Thanks, Josh. All right. Cheers. Folks, thanks for listening to On the Tape. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe in the podcast stores to On the Tape. Follow us on Twitter at On the Tape Pod. And you know what? Recommend us to some of your friends. We'll see you next week. Thanks again. Thanks.